0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Obama administration moves to expand a huge marine reserve in the Pacific and beef up federal programs to protect fish stocks and seafood consumers.
1: We can make it so that there is one of those codes that you see you can scan with your phone, and you should be able to find out everything about that fish. What it is, where it was caught, when it was caught, what gear was used to catch it, and how it traveled from the boat through the supply chain to your plate.
0: Also why a biologist is reaching into a hole even though he hears the sound of a rattlesnake.
2: There's a lot of rattlesnakes in holes, and so any potential predator that's coming up on this hole and and sneaking down the tunnel would actually um, think twice, perhaps, if he hears a rattlesnake in there. Certainly I feel some trepidation when I'm reaching my arm down in there and I hear those rattles, and, and I'm hoping it's not a rattlesnake.
3: That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston
0: and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. President George W. Bush created a huge marine sanctuary in the Pacific Ocean, and now President Barack Obama says he wants to make it the biggest marine reserve in the world. For the president, protecting the ocean is a personal as well as an environmental imperative.
4: You know, growing up in Hawaii, I learned early to appreciate the beauty and power of the ocean. Of course, we also know how fragile our blue planet can be. Rising levels of carbon dioxide are causing our oceans to acidify. Pollution endangers marine life. Overfishing threatens whole species as well as the people who depend on them for food and their livelihoods.
0: President Obama made the announcement as Secretary of State John Kerry convened diplomats, experts, and advocates from around the world to work on ocean conservation by addressing marine protected areas, illegal fishing, false labeling, and ocean acidification. Jackie Savitz is the Vice President of U.S. Oceans for the nonprofit Oceana and joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth,
1: Jackie. Thanks, Steve. Glad to be here.
0: So President Obama says he wants to create a new marine reserve. What exactly is he talking about, and how big would it be?
1: Well, it's actually a very exciting proposal. He's proposed to expand the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument from about its current size of about 87,000 square miles to nearly 780,000 square miles. It would make the Pacific Remote Islands Monument nine times the size it is today.
0: How hard is it going to be for President Obama to uh, make this enormous Marine Reserve happen? Who might be opposed to something like this, and what could they do to try and stop it?
1: Well, we hope it won't be too hard. What he's proposed to do is to use the summer as a public comment period where he'll be able to take input from all of the stakeholders that might be interested, and that would include fishermen, both recreational and commercial fishermen, tourism Interests as well as environmental organizations like Oceana. Typically, what you see is commercial fishermen often are the opponents to this, and so they'll have to take a look and see whether they feel it is a a big imposition on them or not. But what you have to keep in mind is that these protected areas actually have benefits to fisheries. A lot of fish have larvae that are planktonic, which means that they kind of drift with the tides and the currents um, and even sometimes the winds. And so what that means is that larvae that are spawned by fish in a marine protected area can actually end up growing up and living most of their lives far away from that area. And so that's something that could actually benefit uh, fishermen in the future.
0: How effective is it to protect large tracts of ocean in terms of conserving marine species?
1: Well, it's been shown to be very effective. What they find is that you see an increase in both the number of animals that are in the area and also the diversity, the different types of species that are present. And diversity, of course, leads to a more stable community, a community that can be more resilient to impacts, like the impacts of climate change, for example. But the thing that people don't realize is that the protected areas can actually have impacts much further from the protected area than you might expect. And a really good example of that is there was a study done in an area called the Dry Tortugas, which is just west of Key West in Florida, which is a marine-protected area. And what they found there was that the entire region benefited. So not just the area west of Key West, but also all throughout the Florida Keys and even around to the east of the Keys on the way up to Miami.
0: Now, there are a number of marine-protected reserves around the world. Some of them, people say, are really just lines on a map and not particularly well-enforced. Others do better with uh, protecting the species there uh, that they promised to protect. How does the United States uh, enforce a protected area like this, way off in the middle of the Pacific?
1: That's a very good question and a very good point. Um, once a, an area is designated for protection, the next challenge becomes enforcement. It's a big challenge. People are starting to use things like satellite technology, radar local knowledge, all kinds of new tools tied to technology. And I actually think in the next couple of years, we're going to see major advances in fisheries enforcement.
0: Now, Secretary of State uh, John Kerry invited uh, a number of other countries to talk about conservation. Um, what were the most important uh, voices outside of the United States that you heard at the Secretary's gathering?
1: You know, Secretary Kerry really did something unprecedented with this conference. At the very beginning, he opened the conference by saying, I don't just want to talk, I want to actually get things done. It led to a very long list of commitments that were made by the U.S. government, by President Obama, and also by foreign governments that were here at the conference. A number of countries stood up, especially some of the island nations, uh, like Kiribati and the Bahamas, the Cook Islands, Palau, And they talked about the importance of protecting their fisheries. And many of them designated extremely large areas of their exclusive economic zones, in some cases their entire exclusive economic zones, as marine protected areas. Some of them with very strong restrictions on industrial fishing. Um, And I think when you add them all up, you start to see a really important trend in protecting areas that can lead to great increases in the long run in fishery abundance and our ability to feed people protein from the ocean.
0: Now, President Obama has also announced that he wants a new federal program aimed at uh, stopping illegal fishing and also seafood fraud. What would such a program like that do?
1: Well, this is a really important issue. As you know, what you're purchasing when it comes to fish may not actually be what you're getting. And we know this because Oceana did a study where we looked at 1,300 samples of fish and only about two-thirds of them were what they were marketed to be. And so the president announced that he'll set up a task force to curb illegal fishing and seafood fraud. Um, And that's something that Oceana is very happy to hear and something that we've been very concerned about for some time.
0: How big a deal is uh, seafood fraud, do you think?
1: Well, it depends how you look at it. From a consumer standpoint, a third of what you order may not be actually what you're getting. That could have health implications. For example, if you're a woman of childbearing age and you try to order a low-mercury fish, like grouper, but you're served a high-mercury fish, like tilefish, then it affects your health and potentially your baby's health. Similarly, if you're a consumer that's trying to order sustainable seafood and they serve you something that's not sustainable then it's taken away your ability to use your consumer power to promote sustainable fishing. The other big concern is that illegal fishing is responsible for as much as a third of the fish that are actually coming in. And that's a big problem.
0: Define for us what's an illegal fish.
1: Well, if someone is fishing in an area where there's no fishing allowed, like in a marine protected area, or if they're using gear that is not allowed, um, such as drift nets, which are very harmful to marine life and have been banned in a lot of areas or they could be fishing without a permit, or they could be taking more than their limit. So there's a whole variety of different ways uh, that fish can be caught illegally. And any time that happens, it undermines the management measures that have been put in place on purpose to make sure we take just enough fish so that the populations can continue to produce fish for the future. Now, if we set up a traceability system so that all fish that comes into the United States can be traced from boat to plate, We can make it so that there's a QR code, which is one of those codes that you see you can scan with your phone. You can scan it, and you should be able to find out everything about that fish, what it is, where it was caught, when it was caught, what gear was used to catch it, and how it traveled from the boat through the supply chain to your plate. And you can see some of these QR codes at stores like Whole Foods, where they actually sell some of these fish that are being voluntarily labeled with all this information and that shows us that it can be done and it can be done throughout the entire uh, fish market
0: jackie savitz is vice president for u.s oceans for oceana thanks so much for taking the time jackie
1: thank you steve it's my pleasure protecting
0: vast areas of the pacific ocean around far distant u.s possessions may be an important key to conserving ocean species and biodiversity but right on the pacific northwest coast some beloved ocean dwellers are in serious trouble Scientists have been puzzled and alarmed to watch sea stars sickening and dying with a peculiar malady that makes them rip themselves apart. But now, as Ashley Ahern of the public media collaborative EarthFix reports, science is getting a better handle on what exactly is going on.
5: The village of East Sound on Orcas Island draws thousands of tourists in the summer months. They come to see whales, bald eagles, and for avid beachcombers, sea stars. In fact, the little beach in East Sound is a sea star hotspot. Thousands of them cluster in the nooks and crannies of this rocky patch of island coast. But that may not be the case for much longer.
6: Oh boy, well, I'll tell you, Ashley, it's a lot worse than it was last
5: Drew Harvell has been studying marine disease for decades. She's a marine epidemiologist with Cornell University and the University of Washington. The sea star wasting syndrome has just arrived in the San Juan Islands after decimating populations up and down the west coast. Scientists think the cooler waters and swift currents surrounding these islands may have been protecting the population. But now the sun's out, the water's warming, and the sea stars are getting sick. Harvell points at a handful of orange and purple stars nestled into the rocks nearby. One's arm is hanging on by a single gnarled string of flesh.
6: Uh, It kind of just looks dried out, wasted, thin, deflated. Sea um, stars are not supposed to look like that.
5: Last week, when Harvell's team visited this site, they found one out of every ten stars was sick. Now, almost half of the sea stars here are showing signs of the wasting syndrome.
1: Uh, here's, a, actually, here's a lesion on this one. Get a picture of that. Um, so that's kind of the next stage is uh, the appearance of lesions. And then, of course, the bad part is then the arms start to tear off.
5: Harvell says this is the largest documented marine epidemic in human history. Scientists have confirmed that there is an infectious agent to blame, but they're not sure if it's a bacteria or a virus. It appears to be transmitted through the water or through physical contact.
1: Most of the stars in our waters probably have already been exposed because if we bring them in to the lab and expose them to
5: temperature stress, they get sick. Warm water stresses out sea stars, sort of like when you're fighting a cold and you get overtired and then the sickness takes hold. So the hypothesis is that warmer waters may not cause the disease, but they can exacerbate it. That hypothesis seems to hold true further down the coast, Carol Blanchett is a research biologist at UC Santa Barbara who's been following the disease outbreak there.
6: Sea stars across Southern California, at least, have been pretty much wiped out at most sites. And the period of time in which the disease has progressed rapidly has been a period of time in which waters have been warmer than Usual winter conditions
5: but there's another new hypothesis that Blanchette wants to explore. She thinks there could be a connection to what sea stars are eating. you see Santa Barbara has an aquarium right on the ocean. The tanks are filled with seawater that's pumped in, and the aquarium sea stars got sick at the same time as the nearby wild population did. But then scientists noticed something interesting in one tank, sea stars were being fed mussels that were harvested from the shore near the aquarium. In another tank, the sea stars were fed frozen squid. The stars that ate the wild mussels got sick. The stars that ate the squid didn't.
6: And, you know, I don't want to make too much of this because it's a very small sample size. But it is interesting that there may be a link to acquiring the disease through the food that they're eating.
5: As filter feeders, mussels could be concentrating the pathogen in their flesh. And sea stars eat a lot of mussels. So what happens if all the sea stars die off? They're an apex predator, a keystone species.
6: Losing a predator like that to the system is bound to have some pretty serious ecological consequences. And we we really don't know exactly what the system is going to look like in the absence of having these predators around. But we're, we're quite certain that it's going to have an impact.
5: Scientists at Cornell hope to identify the pathogen behind sea star wasting syndrome in the coming weeks. Their findings will be submitted to the journal Science. Sea stars have survived mass wasting syndromes in the past, but no one has ever seen a die off as big as the one taking place on the West Coast now. I'm Ashley Ahern on Orcas Island.
0: Ashley reports for the public media collaborative Earthfix. There's more at our website, loe.org. up putting a price on what mother nature does for us for free keep listening to living on earth it's living on earth i'm steve kerwood if you look back over industrial history there's no end of examples of dangerous toxic pollution some stand out as among the worst for the u.s think love canal the military equivalent could well be the marine Corps' massive complex at camp lejeune in north carolina Over the decades, Marines and their families drank water loaded with toxic chemicals. And the bad water is now blamed for maladies that range from miscarriages to deadly cancers. And earlier this month, the U.S. Supreme Court set a precedent that adds insult to injury for the thousand or more of those victims and their families who have sued for damages. The court ruled that a local state statute takes precedence over the federal Superfund law when it comes to time limits on filing claims. Mike Magner is author of A Trust Betrayed, the untold story of Camp Lejeune, and joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Oh, thank
7: you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Mike, what happened at Camp Lejeune? Please set the scene for us.
7: Well, Camp Lejeune opened in 1941 to train Marines for the uh, beach landings that they would be doing during World War II. And it grew to the point where you could have 180,000 people or more on board at any one time. And what they were doing at the base in the 50s and 60s and 70s was what industries and military bases all around the country were doing, and that is throwing everything they had in terms of waste on the land. Battery acid, used battery acid in pits, putting fuel oil on the roads to uh, keep the dust down. They were uh, spraying down equipment and tanks and vehicles with a highly toxic solvent called trichloroethylene or TCE because it took off all the grease and and oil. Uh, There was also a dry cleaner at the base that was leaking perchloroethylene, another toxic solvent, and the problem at Camp Lejeune is it's right on the coast of North Carolina and the soil is all very sandy, so everything that you put on the land goes right down into the groundwater and they were using the most shallow aquifer for their drinking water at the base.
0: So all these chemicals wound up in the drinking water for Camp Lejeune.
7: Yes. Now, not the entire uh, system, because there are more than 100 wells being pumped at this big base. But it did, in fact, contaminate about 10 of those wells, which happened to be in the most populated areas of the base.
0: And briefly, what can these chemicals do to people?
7: Oh, there's a wide range of effects from TCE, everything from liver cancer, uh, leukemia, all kinds of various illnesses that you can't even describe. And if a mother is drinking this water while she's pregnant, the effects on the fetus are terrible. And and we have a number of examples where children uh, that were born at the base developed leukemia at an early age, and many of them died.
0: How many people were affected by
7: this bad water at Camp Lejeune? So it was a period of several decades, and it's estimated that as many as a million people went through the base in that time frame. So that could be that many exposed to it.
0: There's so many sad stories coming out of Camp Lejeune. Uh, Please tell us one.
7: Uh, One of them is uh, Jerry Ensminger, who was a drill instructor at uh, Camp Lejeune and a Marine for almost 25 years. And he got pregnant, or his wife got pregnant at the base in uh, 1975. And when that uh, child was born, she seemed quite normal. But at the age of six, she was diagnosed with leukemia, and she died at the age of nine. And it was not until 1997 when uh, one of the government's scientific agencies put out a report that said that the contaminated water may be linked to childhood illnesses. And uh, Jerry saw that report on TV, and uh, he actually spent the rest of his life, uh, he's, campaigning on behalf of victims like him, demanding justice from the military uh, and some kind of compensation.
0: So how many people think that they were adversely affected by uh, the bad water at Camp Lejeune?
7: There have been more than a 1,000 claims filed against the government demanding uh, compensation for family members. Now, um, Marines themselves are not able to sue the government for any damages that incurred while they, occurred while they were in the service. But veterans who are affected can go to the uh, VA and can insist on disability payments. But these other several thousand claims have been filed by um, Marines on behalf of family members, like Jerry, who lost his daughter.
0: And how are those people being helped at this point?
7: At, at this point, they're not getting any anything because the government is saying it's going to wait until all of the studies are completed. And the CDC, the Federal Science Agency, is continuing to study uh, links between the water and illnesses. And while those claims are pending, uh, more than a dozen people have already gone to federal court to demand greater uh, compensation and damages. Mike,
0: what is the impact of the Supreme Court uh, ruling?
7: Well, the Supreme Court ruling wasn't directly about Camp Lejeune, but it is about a case in North Carolina that involved similar toxic chemicals, TCE, uh, which a company there dumped on the ground, and it ended up affecting groundwater for a number of property owners. The case hinges on whether the Superfund law takes precedence over a state law in North Carolina called the Statute of Repose. Under that state statute, the company that was involved in the case argued that no one can sue them for any kind of environmental violations more than 10 years after it occurred. Well, the property owners in that case didn't find out that their water was contaminated until like 22 years later. And they filed a federal lawsuit saying that under the federal Superfund law, Once you find out about contamination that affected you, you have two years from that point to file a case. And a appellate court ruled that the Superfund law did take precedence over the state law. And the government went to the Supreme Court on the side of the toxic chemical producer in, in North Carolina, and the Supreme Court ruled that, the state law does take precedence over the Superfund law in that those people who file claims more than 10 years after the act of contamination are out of luck.
0: Now, the Supreme Court ruling is on a different case than Camp Lejeune, but it sets an important precedent. What's the impact of the uh, Supreme Court ruling on the Camp Lejeune lawsuit?
7: The impact is that the people who believe that they were harmed or family members were harmed may not be entitled to uh, any kind of compensation because their cases could be thrown out.
0: Now, what is to be done uh, for these folks and their families that were so injured by the bad water at Camp Lejeune?
7: Well, I think one of the first things that needs to be done is maybe correct that law, that the Superfund law was not worded correctly to supersede the state statute of repose. So they could easily fix that if they can convince Congress to pass a law that makes that clear. Then their cases could proceed in, uh, in federal court. And if nothing is done? Uh, if nothing is done, uh, those folks may be out of luck in terms of getting any kind of compensation for what happened. Uh, and the military will kind of walk away from many negligent acts uh, without having to really pay for the people that were harmed by it.
0: Mike Magner is the managing editor of the National Journal Daily and author of A Trust Betrayed The Untold Story of Camp Lejeune and the Poisoning of Generations of Marines and Their Families. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Mike. Thank you. Earlier in the program, we were discussing the plans of the Obama administration to protect a broad swath of the Pacific Ocean, in part to help build up fish stocks. But some would urge us to take ocean preservation a step further, arguing that all fisheries in international waters should be shut down, as the ability of the ecosystems of the high seas to store carbon dioxide is more valuable than all the fish caught there. But calculating the value of services provided free by the Earth's natural resources is tricky, though Paul Sutton, professor of geography at the University of Denver, has done just that in a new paper published in Global Environmental Change. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Paul Sutton, tell me, worldwide, what is the value of all the ecosystem services the natural environment provides us?
8: Well, Steve, it's it's amazing. The global value of all the ecosystem services provided by the world is roughly twice as much as the marketed world economy. The the sum of the gross national product of all the countries of the world is 70 to 75 trillion dollars, but nature is pollinating crops and protecting us from storms and producing fish and purifying water, and if you price the value of all the things that nature does for us, it's twice the size of the global marketed economy. It's roughly $125 trillion.
0: You did the first round of your studies back in 1997. What's really striking to you about your findings today compared to 17 years ago?
8: At the updated prices, we have lost $20 trillion per year in terms of ecosystem services provided by nature. and So that's bigger than the economy of the United States. That's a huge amount of economic benefit that we are squandering where's most of that value being lost primarily coral reefs coastal wetlands and tropical rainforests
0: and this is every year
8: every year that this is a common question i get this value 125 trillion dollars per year this is what bees have done for us this year what wetlands have avoided in terms of storm damages this year. So it's essentially the interest on natural capital.
0: So let's talk about a couple of the ecosystems that you took a look at. Uh, What about coastal wetlands uh, and their ability to protect cities like New Orleans or New York from more severe storms that we're seeing now with the
8: changing climate? What are these wetlands worth? Just the storm protection services provided by coastal wetlands was $23 billion a year. So our updated estimate of the value of wetlands was around $25 trillion in 2011. Now, how do you come up with these figures? I mean, how do you calculate the value of a wetland? That's a really good question. And so let, let's let's talk about a particular ecosystem service provided by coastal wetlands. And, and an example would be storm protection. When tropical storms like Sandy hit, the damage they would have done is mitigated by the presence of coastal wetlands. And so what you need to do is take data sets like maps of the paths that the hurricanes pass. And then you need a map of the coastal wetlands. You also need a map of economic activity. And then you get the insurance company data that documents how much damage you really did experience as a result of Katrina and Andrew and Hugo and all those storms. And then you build a statistical model in which there's only two parameters that influence how much damage. There was wind speed. The higher the wind speed, the more economic damage is done by the storm. And how much wetlands was in the swath of the storm. The more wetlands are there, the less damage done by the storm. And when you apply that to all the storms over the course of the years, it works out to an average of about $23 billion per year in reduced damage or avoided costs from hurricanes.
0: Now, in many of these cases, I gather that the ecosystem service depends on the place that it's in. Uh, A coastal wetland on a deserted island is not worth as much as something that's protecting Charleston, South Carolina, for example.
8: Yeah, so... Basically, human well-being results from an interaction of human capital, built capital, natural capital, and social capital. And some of these things interact spatially, and some of them interact in other ways. I mean, a storm is not going to do a lot of damage if there's nobody there. However, there are other ecosystem services like carbon sequestration, where we're just happy to have any part of the planet pull carbon out of the atmosphere to mitigate climate change.
0: Now, how do you respond to critics who say it's wrong to put a dollar
8: value on ecosystem services?
0: Mother Nature is here for us. It's our gift from
8: our creator. Uh, uh, I I think that's a totally legitimate criticism. And one way the criticism is put is, all you guys have done is underestimated the value of infinity. (laughs) And I agree with that. I basically agree that Mother Nature, the natural endowment that we have been given by our Creator, perhaps, is infinitely valuable. Water is infinitely valuable to you, and you don't pay all of your income for water. So, what we're really trying to do is to get the public to appreciate the relative contribution of the natural world to human well being. And these findings are rough, they're probably an underestimate. But we've lost $20 trillion in the last decade and a half. That should make someone concerned. We have people that are very concerned about the economy, and they go back and forth between Goldman Sachs and the Federal Reserve and the Securities and Exchange Commission, and they have the authority to print trillions of dollars. But we do not have anybody with that kind of political power to do anything to protect the environment. And the environment is worth more to us than the marketed economy.
0: So, Paul, now we have all this data. What do we do with it? How can we use this knowledge of the value of the environment in economic terms to take better care of it?
8: We know a lot of the things we need to do. We need to develop renewable resources and alternative energy. We need to provide family planning to all people that want it. We need to decelerate the rate at which CO2 is increasing in the atmosphere. So all the answers associated with climate change are part of this problem. What we hope to accomplish with this kind of pricing of the planet is to speak in a language that policymakers understand to help us recognize that we have a market failure that is larger than the size of the global economy and hopefully, we can think about ecosystem services in a way that they are considered as public goods that require new institutions for their maintenance, nurturing, and preservation.
0: Paul Sutton is a professor of geography at the University of Denver. Thanks so much for taking this time with us today,
9: Paul.
8: It's been my pleasure, Steve. It's always a pleasure to chat with you folks at PRI.
3: Coming up, digging holes in the ground in search of owls. That's Ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Well, it's a pencil and paper program
0: this week. From calculating the value of ecosystem services, we now turn to pricing carbon, or more precisely, whether current economic models place a realistic price tag on carbon. The new math comes from the London School of Economics Grantham Research Institute, where Nicholas Lord Stern and Simon Dietz contend that current models grossly underestimate the actual risks and costs of global warming. If we want to have the market rein in carbon pollution, say Stern and Dietz, there needs to be a much higher price placed globally on carbon pollution. To get a handle on the economic models in play here, we called up Charles Komanoff, director of the New York-based Carbon Tax
10: Center. There's one uh, economist, a brilliant economist, Bill Nordhaus of Yale, whose work over the past 25 years is the basis of most of the governmental and official estimates of the uh, economic cost of climate damage.
0: What's his method of uh, figuring those costs in in layman's terms?
10: Well, he's got a model called the DICE model, uh, and uh, DICE is an acronym for Dynamic Integrated Climate Economy Model. But you have to believe that Bill Nordhaus, when he came up with that acronym, had a twinkle in his eye because uh, he knew that humanity is rolling the dice by uh, continuing almost unabated to burn fossil fuels and pump climate-disrupting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But it's a very uh, nifty and widely used climate model. But as this new report from London is showing us, there are several key dimensions that Bill Nordhaus of Yale did not fully include in his DICE model. What's the problem with this
0: way of calculating those costs?
10: Um, Well, there are three big flaws pointed out in this new report, and I think we should try to knock them down one by one.
0: Okay, number one is?
10: That the impact of climate change on economic activity in the DICE model ignored deliberately the impact of climate damage on the ability of economies to increase their technological capital. And the implicit assumption in the DICE model is that regardless of the level of climate disruption, technological progress is going to continue unabated. And when you think about it, climate change doesn't just disrupt ecosystems. The disruptive effect of climate change is going to affect everything, including the ability of economies and innovators to generate new ways to produce economic growth.
0: All right, Charles, what's the second shortcoming of the DICE
10: model? Well, um, the number two problem uh, identified in this new paper is tipping points. As global temperatures increase, there could be and almost uh, are certain to be some very unwelcome surprises that will act as really pouring more fuel onto the fire of climate change. One example is that as the permafrost in northern ecosystems melts, then methane hydrates that have been stored for millions of years sort of safely under the soil will be exposed to the atmosphere. And we all know that gram for gram methane is an even more potent warming gas than carbon dioxide, so that we could have a sudden and dramatic increase in the rate of uh, warming beyond what a simple linear extrapolation would lead us to expect. And it's this kind of tipping point that has been ignored in the DICE model such that, uh, and you know, here's a kind of nonsensical result um, from the DICE model, that the amount of temperature increase, according to the DICE model, that you would need to uh, expect a halving of global economic activity, would be 32 degrees Fahrenheit. That's
0: just, un- that's just unimaginable, isn't it?
10: Yeah, I-, I mean, if you think about it, Steve, you know, a 32-degree average increase in global temperatures would pretty much make our planet uninhabitable, you know, let alone the impact on forests, on agriculture, on ecosystem services that the entire economy and human sustenance depends upon. But, you know, that's patently absurd.
0: And the third problem?
10: The third um, exclusion uh, from the DICE model, pointed out in this new paper, is the issue, um, we could call it fat tails. And it's the fact that the DICE model is set up to produce um, only the best guess of what the impact on society and economic activity is going to be from a certain temperature increase. And it rules out fat tails in the damage function to society. You know, you could think of fat tails in terms of insurance. Okay. Nobody expects, you know, when you think about what's going to happen you know, to you or your family in the next year, you don't expect that your house is going to burn down, but yet you have fire insurance. And so this new paper out of London is saying, in effect, that society needs to have an insurance policy to guard against these, that tails of these unexpected ways in which a given amount of climate change is going to disrupt society.
0: So then what does this paper from London School of Economics propose as a solution uh, to deal with the economic impact of climate disruption?
10: Well, you know, the paper is more about a rethinking of this influential DICE model, but they do make clear... That if we are going to rely on a carbon price as the primary policy tool to change uh, the economic equations and to hasten the decarbonization of industrial activity so that we can really address climate change, then the carbon price rate or the carbon tax rate is going to have to be at least several times greater than what middle-of-the-road economists uh, and U.N. economists, what they've been willing to put out. So instead of, say, a 20 or $30 per ton carbon tax as the optimal level, and then the only question is how do we get to that level, how fast, the import of this new paper is that the carbon tax rate is going to have to be triple digit. And the only question is how fast do we get to triple digits uh, and how high up above $100 per ton do we take it?
0: Charles Kolmanoff is the director of the Carbon Tax Center in New York City. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Charles.
10: We'll see. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: We check in now with Peter Dykstra, publisher of Environmental Health News, that's ehn.org, and dailyclimate.org, for his take on what's shaking beyond the headlines. He's on the line from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. What you got for us?
11: Hi, Steve. We're going to talk about big oil, big guns, and not quite
0: so big coal. Well, tell me more.
11: Um, The new kid on the block in cable news, Al Jazeera America, has been doing some really strong reporting on a lot of environmental topics. Most recently this week, uh, there was a series by Jamie Tarabay on some strange environmental bedfellows. That includes a non um, whose membership consists of many hunter conservationists and the political muscle of big oil getting
0: together. So you're telling me that big oil firms need bigger guns?
11: Yeah, well, the oil and gas industry is pairing up with the NRA. You've got to remember the NRA is historically a hunter and firearm safety group. They're also uh, pairing up Big Oil with the Safari Club International, and the reason for this apparently is to back members of Congress who want to roll back endangered species protections and open up more public lands to oil and gas drilling. It's a recent report from the Center for American Progress that put oil and gas contributions to the NRA as high as $5.6 million in this past uh, 2012 election cycle.
0: So what's the common bond between oil drilling and hunting?
11: Well, I'm not sure there is one beyond a hostility toward protecting public lands and endangered species. Most hunters, of course, hold a very strong ethic about conservation. Uh, You can't hunt wildlife if there's nothing wild out there. But there are some big game hunters who chafe at the notion of regulation, so government intervention becomes a common enemy for big oil and some in big guns.
0: So the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? What's next for us, Peter? got some news from the
11: front on the war on coal. If there is, in fact, a war on coal, coal's probably doing pretty well. Coal consumption worldwide rose by 3% last year. Its market share of world energy production is at its highest level since 1970. This good news for the coal industry is according to the annual BP Statistical Review, which is considered to be an industry standard report on energy use.
0: So if someone's concerned about climate change, this can't be good news, but... Isn't coal consumption going down in the U.S.?
11: It is going down in the U.S., but in the biggest economies of the developing world, coal is all the rage. You go to China, India, even Pakistan uh, last week announced a huge commitment to coal-based electricity. It's even on the rise in Europe.
0: So if coal is at 30% worldwide, where does the other 70% come from?
11: oil is still the king. Its market share is dropping, though. It's down to about one-third, 33 percent of global energy. Natural gas is rising, of course, due to uh, fracking becoming more commonplace. And even though there's still a small fraction of energy production, wind farms rose by 21 percent this past year. Solar jumped by 33 percent.
0: Okay, Peter. Well, take us back now for this week's environmental history lesson.
11: We've got a little lesson in geoengineering. It's when humans try to make things better by harnessing nature. 101 years ago this week, we learned of a grand, well-intentioned project that never happened. And it's really a pretty good thing that it didn't happen. June 1913, the New York Times ran a great big story about a super ambitious scheme to completely dam off all the entrances to New York Harbor and create a hydroelectric energy colossus. Those dams would also control floods, build a better seaport, repel invading foreign navies, and, of course, they'd get rid of those unsightly and insanitary marshes and tide flats, according to the Times.
0: Whoa, completely dam off New York Harbor and Long Island Sound?
11: With controlled access for shipping, but yeah, completely dam off New York Harbor and Long Island Sound. Tides around New York City can run up to about seven feet. They're theoretically a great source of tidal power, But part of the rationale in this proposal from a century ago is even then they were saying we're going to have to cope with running out of coal someday. And, of course, the cost of damming off one of the largest estuaries on the East Coast would have turned out to be an ecological nightmare. What they called those insanitary marshes are called wetlands today. They're a breeding ground for all sorts of marine life. If you built dams all around New York, you'd trap the pollution behind them. That would have helped make the whole New York metropolitan area unsightly and insanitary.
0: Of course, marshes and tidal flats uh, protect against floods, and if there were more of them, New York might have done better when Superstorm Sandy hit. But the devil's advocate argument here is that those proposed giant dams might have saved New York from Superstorm Sandy and made the whole region less coal-dependent.
11: Yeah, but I've got the devil's advocate argument to your devil's advocate argument, and that would be that New York Harbor would have turned into a fetid, polluted, managed bathtub that would have been a whole lot less worth saving. Either way, this remarkable geoengineering scheme via the New York Times in June 1913 is linked from the Living on Earth website.
0: That's LOE.org. Peter Dykstra is publisher of Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks so much, Peter. Talk to you next time.
11: All right, Steve. Talk to you soon.
0: One of the pleasures we find in Bird Note is learning more about some less familiar feathered friends, and that's the case this week with an unexpected underground owl. Here's Michael Stein.
4: It's a warm May afternoon. As you take a leisurely drive through open grassland in the west, suddenly a remarkable sight catches your eye. Atop a fence post, on surprisingly long legs, stands a small brown owl you've chanced upon a burrowing owl, an owl species most active during the day. The 10-inch tall owl bobs up and down on its legs, swivels its head, and stares back at you with large lemon-yellow eyes. Fluttering up from its perch, the burrowing owl hovers 20 feet above ground, then drops, catching a large beetle in its talons. It flies to an abandoned marmot burrow, where it nests and avoids the heat of midday. Naturalist Hamilton Tyler noted that the Zuni people call the burrowing owl the priest of the prairie dogs because the owls live on peaceable terms with prairie dogs, rattlesnakes, and horned toads. The burrowing owl is in serious decline in the West due to intensive agriculture, destruction of ground squirrel colonies, and elimination of sage habitats. This charismatic owl which migrates south for the winter, returns each spring to an ever more uncertain fate. I'm Michael Stein.
0: To see some pictures of these interesting owls, burrow into our website, LOE.org. But before you do, take a listen to a story from Idaho, where one biologist has been studying these owls for years. Jeff Rice has our report.
9: It's well over 100 degrees out on the Snake River Plain in southern Idaho, and biologist Dr. Jim Beltop is digging for owls. This is a study site on the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, a few dozen miles from Boise. The vast expanse of tan-colored soil and sagebrush has one of the densest populations of nesting raptors in North America. Today, we're hoping to find some rare burrowing owls.
2: The owls will be down here in this chamber.
9: Western burrowing owls are one of the smallest owl species and live in abandoned ground squirrel or badger holes in wide-open areas like this one. The field is next to a highway and seems barren, mostly clay soil and hardly even any grass—exactly the way the owls like it. They like
2: areas with very little vegetation, um, little or none, actually, is what they prefer, and. The reasoning is that they like no vegetation so that they can see any ground dwelling
9: predators approaching their nest so that they can get out, out of the way. It's a strategy that works. A tiny brown and white adult owl, no more than 10 inches tall, spots us. He rises up on a pair of spindly legs, sounding a warning call. The rest of the owls are hunkered down, but we know right where to dig. Beltoff, a professor at Boise State University, has built some artificial plastic burrows. The owls have moved in, and he can dig down to the lid and open up the den without too much trouble.
2: some footprints in front of this one, so we'll probably find some babies in here.
9: Beltoff reaches his hand into the den to retrieve a bird, and suddenly... (laughs) The sound is coming from inside the hole... We know this area is crowded with rattlesnakes, but Beltoff doesn't jump back. He reaches deeper into the hole, blindly feeling around. He grabs something, coming out with a burrowing owl fledgling. The bird is about a month old. Its mouth is open, and it's hissing at us. Burrowing owls have about 17 documented types of vocalizations of which this rattle call or hiss is one of them. It's uncanny. Beltoff explains that it's something that only the juvenile owls will do. They haven't developed their ability to fly yet, so they need another way to ward off predators. It's a case of what's called mimicry in animals, and where either the sight
2: of something or the sound of something sounds like something else, and in this particular case, it's a, a case of um, Batesian mimicry, where the sound of something that's harmless actually mimics something that's harmful. There's a lot of rattlesnakes in holes, and so any potential predator that's coming up on this hole and and sneaking down the tunnel would actually um, think twice, perhaps, if he hears a rattlesnake in there. Certainly I feel some trepidation when I'm reaching my arm down in there and I hear those rattles, and,
9: and I'm hoping it's not a rattlesnake. The owl's mimicry is effective against predators like badgers, but it can't protect it from its biggest threat, bulldozers and creeping human sprawl burrowing owls are considered threatened or endangered in a number of western states. The owls tend to live on wide open flat ground, a perfect place for shopping malls and parking lots. That's why Belltop is monitoring the birds, keeping track of their health and weight, and tagging them to study their migration patterns. We band, band
2: each one with an aluminum leg band, and then we give them three color bands, so that then when they sit up on a perch we can actually read those color band combinations with a spotting scope and we can tell who, who it is we're dealing with without having to recapture them.
9: After the young birds are tagged, we cover up the owl den. An adult owl has been watching us from a fence post probably the whole time. It's a call a bit less fearsome above ground. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Rice in southern Idaho.
0: by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Lauren Hinkle, Jake Lucas, Abby Nighthill, Jennifer Marquis, and Olivia Powers all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living
3: on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more www.stoneyfield.com
10: PRI Public Radio International